It is not our job as the body to figure out the best ways to do church. It is not our job to try to make the church entertaining, fun, fresh, or new. No, it is our job as the body to submit to the headship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're listening to The Master's Plan, a sermon series at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, good morning. First, I want to start by asking everyone to stand. Um, That is, of course, uh, a joke. We've been working on the liturgy as of late, and uh, it's still a work in progress. So we're taking baby steps to figuring that out. So um, for the meantime, you can stay seated. Um, As you know, we're now in the second week of our new series entitled The Master's Plan, where we're looking at the three aspects of our church's mission to win, disciple, and send. Last week, we began our series with a look at what it means for the church to be on a mission to win. As Pastor Pilgrim began the series, he opened with one simple question. What is the gospel? In his exposition of 1 Corinthians 15, we found that the gospel is the good news that Christ has died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he was raised again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The good news is that we find salvation in this message for all who have been chosen to hear and respond to this message. Now, as we come to our second week of this new series, I want to begin with yet again another question. What is the purpose of the church gathering? Why is it that for the past 2,000 years, the church has been gathering on Sunday mornings and throughout the week? Uh, what, What is the purpose of this meeting? What is the end goal? Now, if you answer this question by looking around at today's Western Evangelical Church, your answer may be that the purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is to attract those who are on the outside. It may be that the purpose of the Sunday morning gathering is to entertain those who are on the inside. Perhaps your justification for small groups would be a need for more social interaction uh, full of pizza and board games. Uh, It's a sad reality that this is what comes to mind for many today when they think of the church. Why is this? Where does this thinking come from? Uh, You may be familiar or have heard of something called uh, the church growth movement. This was a movement that began in the late 70s and early 80s that was centered around one philosophical idea. If the end product was a church bursting at the seams with people, it didn't matter what method you used to get there, the ends would justify the means. Because of this, it was the mission of those who who led this movement to make church as attractive as possible for people in hopes that maybe their churches would grow. But rather than relying on the scriptures, they adopted and implemented marketing principles and strategies used by Disney in their attempts to grow their churches. One of those marketing strategies they used was called cultural serving. And part of the strategy was that they would go to the downtown areas of their cities, polling the people, asking them, one, what they liked about church, Two, what they didn't like about church. And three, what the church would have to change in order for them to attend. And these polls were given to just about anyone and everyone. Believers, non-believers, Muslims, atheists, it didn't matter who they polled. They just wanted to gather as much data as possible. It was their goal to provide a good product and service their targeted audience. Therefore, they needed to know what the customer wanted. For instance, they found that a good number of people would be more likely to attend church if the services weren't so long. So what did those in this movement do? They made it their goal to make services less than an hour. 
uh, when they found that people weren't able to focus on a message more than 20 to 25 minutes, what did they do? They did away with the hour-long expositions of God's word and traded it for something else. When the church showed that people didn't like the older and outdated songs, they responded by throwing out the hymnals. When they picked up on the fact that people didn't like the offensive crosses on the walls, they took them down and put them in the back of the closets. People didn't want to hear messages on the sin of man and wrath of God. They didn't want to be taught theology and doctrine in the service. So what did they do? They did away with the expository and exegetical preaching of the word of God and traded it for shorter, more practical in life applicable topical messages. This was their way of going back to the drawing board, as it were. This was their way of starting from scratch to make the church fresh and new for the modern world. They had rebranded the church and boasted in the fact that these churches were unlike any people had ever been to. They famously used this slogan, not your grandparents' church, as if to say they had a new and fresh take on an old classic. And what happened as a result of this movement? The churches became huge. Thousands and thousands of people every Sunday, multiple services, multiple campuses, book sales, conferences, you name it. What they had done seemingly worked. They had rebranded the church. They had made it appeasing for the common man in the modern world, and they were bursting at the seams just as they wanted. What many of these leaders noticed happening was that they had become so focused on getting people in the door, so focused on making the church a place that catered to the desires of man, they had created a culture of consumerism in the church, a culture of self-centered people thinking that church was about providing for their individual needs, A church of self-indulgent people thinking they could sit down idly and watch others do ministry. Not only did these leaders notice their churches had become uh, consumerist communities, they had equally become communities of professing believers who did not know the basic and foundational doctrines of the Christian faith. Because they had done away with the expository and exegetical preaching of the scriptures, they had cultures that were filled with people who not only were unable to communicate the gospel to others, but they didn't fully understand the gospel themselves. Those in the church growth movement found that while they had built, it, built churches a mile wide, they had built them no more than an inch deep. And it's heartbreaking that not only do we see the remnants of this movement today, but we have seen it grow more and more over time. Churches bursting at the seams with people whose leadership would be quick to open their service with a Justin Bieber song, but would never open a hymnal. Churches bursting at the seams with people whose leadership would be quick to exegete movies for the lesson but would never open up to the book of Romans. This is because so many leaders have been groomed to run their churches such as this in the name of being seeker sensitive. However, there is a major issue with a seeker sensitive philosophy we find in the book of Romans chapter 3 where Paul says in verse 11, no one seeks for God. Theologically speaking, to have a church that is meant for the seeker is to be a church meant for no one. Why? Well, according to the scriptures, the seeker doesn't exist. Romans chapter 1 says that God has made his invisible attributes clearly seen in that which has been made. And the seeker isn't looking for this truth. No, the sinner is actually suppressing this truth in their unrighteousness. Some churches may claim to be focused on the seeker, but in reality, whether they are aware of it or not, whether they have good intentions or bad intentions, They've turned the church into a place that is focused on entertaining the unregenerate and unbelieving. Reminds me of these chilling words of Charles Spurgeon. See on the screen. He says, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. 
This seems to be the very thing we see in church today, which is why it is so crucial to answer the question, what is the purpose of the church gathering? To find the answer to this question, we'll turn to the fourth chapter of Paul's epistle to the church in Ephesus, where he will give God's intended design for the life and gathering of the church. We start in verses 7 through 10, where we find a foundation for it all. This is really squeaky. But, verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. This section of scripture can at first glance seem a tad obscure and confusing. What is this language Paul is using of, of ascending and descending and how does it answer the question of the church gathering? But what we find in verses 7 through 10 is a foundation for the church being given by Paul as he loosely quotes from the 18th verse of the 68th Psalm, which goes as follows. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. See, in the ancient world, after a conquering king had won a victory, he would, in his return home, ascend up the, uh, the highest hill to declare his victory over the enemy. This would be paraded by all in the kingdom as not only had the king won the battle, but in his victory, in his ascension, he brought with him all the rescued captives and prisoners that had been taken by the enemy. In celebration of this, the king would then disperse gifts amongst the populace. So the 68th Psalm is a song of victory composed by King David to celebrate this very thing after the conquest of the Jebusite city that became Jerusalem. So here in this section of scripture, Paul is loosely quoting from the 68th Psalm as a kind of parenthetical analogy for the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Paul attributes the victorious work of, of the king to Christ who returns from his battle on earth to the glorious heavenly city bringing with him a great host of captives. So when Paul refers to him who descended, he refers to the incarnation of Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. It is in those things that Christ has won the victory over Satan, death, and sin. This is the very message of the gospel we heard last week in 1 Corinthians 15. Because of this victory of Christ, because of that message, we come to uh, verse 8 where Paul says that like the conquering king, Christ has in his victory given gifts to men. This very thing we see in the first chapter of Acts where in his ascension, Christ promises the gift of the Holy Spirit who would come to comfort and empower those rescued captives. We see this come to fruition in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit falls on all flesh giving gifts to men. Now although uh, the way the Spirit granted gifts to men in the day of Pentecost is not in every way normative for today, we see in verse 7 that grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now here Paul isn't referring to salvific grace that was given, but, but to the grace of Christ and his gift giving. We find the same language used in Romans 12 verses 5 through 6 where he says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. In these passages we find that while gifts are given perfectly to all the saints, they are not given equally. We find the same thing in 1 Peter Chapter 4, verse 10, as we are called to be good stewards of God's varied grace. Again, this refers not to salvific grace, not to the distribution of salvation, but to the distribution of gifts. We're all called to be good stewards of those gifts because all of us as, as Christians have been given those gifts. 
Whether you have the gift of leadership or teaching, maybe serving, giving, encouraging, helps, the list goes on and on. We all possess gifts. Some may possess multiple gifts, some may have fewer gifts, but every Christian is gifted by the Holy Spirit, and this is abundantly clear in the scriptures. Every single one is given gifts that we might minister to one another, that we might use them to bring the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. We see in the book of Acts that the first gift given to men was the Holy Spirit, and we come to the 11th verse of today's passage, and we will see the following gifts that Christ has given to the church in verse 11. It says, and he, meaning Christ, the conquering king, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Here in verse 11, we're going to see the four foundational offices that Christ has given to us for the life and gathering of the church. First, we see the apostles. Now, in the writings of the New Testament, we find that the apostles, and more specifically the 12 apostles, were qualified men, men who had seen the resurrected Christ, men who had been chosen by the Holy Spirit to be sent out in the establishment and the planting of the first churches. Then we see prophets. And similar to those in the Old Testament, these prophets were giving in the beginning of the church to convey new revelation to God's people about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Like the apostles, these were men that God had given unique authority and divine revelation to for that foundational building of the church. Now, these two offices of apostle and prophet were only used for a time in the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Because the foundation of the church was laid in the first century, those two offices have now been completed. In the same way that the church is not in need of another cornerstone, she is equally not in need of other apostles and prophets. However, as the church continues, there are still offices in use today that are given, and we will see those as the verse continues. We see in verse 11 that Christ also gave evangelists. Now, although we're all called to do the work of an evangelist, we're all called to share the good news, it seems as if there is a specific giving to some who are commissioned to share the gospel. This is what we know as an evangelist, those who are uh, explicitly called to share the gospel and are gifted to do so. And lastly, we come to the final office of shepherd-teacher. This may appear to be two separate offices, however, in studying the passage, we find that it is one office with two titles. The shepherd teacher is given to lead and care for God's people, to instruct the flock in the word. We typically refer to these men today as pastors or elders, those who have oversight and responsibility for the spiritual life and growth of the church. We can see in verse 11 that, it, that Christ in his ascension has graciously given to the church leaders. Whether it be the apostles and prophets who lay the foundation in the first century or whether it be the evangelists and shepherds he gives us today, Christ has appointed leaders to the church. And he has done so not that they would attract those on the outside, not that they would entertain those on the inside, but as verse 12 says, that they would equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In this very verse, we find the purpose of the church gathering and its mission to disciple Although we won't explicitly see the word discipleship anywhere in this passage, we will clearly see the concept defined in verse 12 with Paul's call to leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, for us, what seems to be a simple verse is actually one that has for years been misunderstood and misinterpreted by many. This call for leaders to equip the saints has been lost in many church gatherings. This is in large part due to the church growth movement, but perhaps another reason is due to poor translations of this passage that have been used in the church. Let me give an example of what I mean. Uh, go ahead and take a look on the screen. 
And we will see uh, Ephesians chapter 4, 11 through 12 in the King James Version. It goes like this. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastor and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, when you first look at the KJV, you may not really see an issue presented. Seemingly, it doesn't differ from that which we see in the ESV we are studying today. However, if we look a bit closer, we'll find that in the KJV, there's a slight difference found in the text in the form of a very misplaced comma following the word saints. This may not seem like an issue to some. However, it becomes problematic for the reader as a simple glance of this passage in the KJV would likely cause the reader to think that along with the perfecting of the saints and the edifying of the body of Christ, Paul is saying that the work of ministry is solely the role of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherds. Now, grammatically speaking, this is the very thing that is presented in the reading of the KJV. For the perfecting of the saints, comma, the work of ministry, comma, the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, because of this translation, generations of the church have been under the impression that it is the threefold mission of the clergy to, one, equip the saints, two, do the work of ministry, and three, edify the body of Christ. However, this is not what we find in the original language. Let's take a look on the screen for a moment. We will see a direct Greek to English translation of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12. Now, the original Greek says this, Toward the perfecting of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's what it says. Now, I am no Greek scholar, but I do believe that the Lord has gifted me with the ability to translate from the original Greek text into the English commas. And from what I can see... Um, the King James translators did a pretty poor job in this translation as they uh, insert a purposeless comma after the word hagios used for saints. The KJV has gotten this wrong because what we actually find in the original Greek and newer English translations is that it is not solely the role of the aforementioned leaders to do the work of ministry. Rather, it is the role of the leaders in the church to do as the Greek says. I'm going to butcher this, so if you speak Greek, don't, don't uh, freak out. But katartismos. Greek speakers, was that okay? Was it decent? Okay, decent. Uh, this word uh, means to equip, train, and disciple the hagios, the saints, Christians, disciples, so that they, not just leadership, would do the work of ministry. But see, we've gotten this so backwards in the church today. Poor ecclesiology, poor teaching, and poor translations of the scriptures have groomed Christians to think that they are nothing other than spectators in the church whose only mission is to attend Sunday after Sunday, dropping a few dollars in the bucket, and leaving after the final song, satisfied, ready to live lives of good morals and values. However, this is not the case. Turn with me for a moment to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. If you don't have your Bible, you should, but it will be on the screen. But I'll take a moment to take a sip of water. Paul says this to the church in Corinth. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come, praise God. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to himself, or us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In this passage, who is the ministry of reconciliation given to? Us. So the church of Corinth, to us, the saints. 
Those who have heard and responded to the glorious good news of the gospel that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has through his blood and atoning work on the cross purchased and redeemed for himself a sinful and rebellious people that he now calls his church. And because of this, we have been, as Paul says, reconciled to the Father, becoming co-heirs, citizens, and perhaps greatest of all, sons. This is the ministry of reconciliation we as the saints have all received. This is the message of reconciliation that we, not only leaderships, but the saints, are called to share to the ends of the earth. Christ has not given gifts to each one of us so that the work of ministry would be left to leadership. God has given each one of us gifts so that we would all use them for the work of ministry. This is why Paul says that through us, God is making his appeal. God is using the saints as vessels to bring the message of reconciliation to the nations. We see in Matthew 28, the great commission to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This mandate given by Christ is not only given to paid pastoral leadership or financially supported missionaries, but to all disciples. That means you and me. The word disciple doesn't refer to second-level Christians or Christians that are further along in their spiritual walk. The word disciple is not used of those in the faith who are more educated or mature. The word disciple in the Greek is the word mathetes, simply meaning learner and follower. This was a Greek word used in Jewish culture of the student of the rabbi. We see in the Gospels, Jesus often referred to as teacher or rabbi. That's not because he held some officially ordained position in the temple, but because like the rabbis in the first century, Jesus traveled with a following of devoted learners. These were his disciples. We as Christians are all disciples. We are all to be fully devoted learners and followers of Jesus Christ. There is no distinction between the two terms, Christian and disciple. In fact, we find these terms used interchangeably in Acts eleven twenty six, where Luke states that in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So then a disciple is a Christian, a Christian is a disciple, and as disciples, we're called to leave here every Sunday morning to do the work of ministry, to bring the message of reconciliation into the workplace, into the school, into our communities. That is the call of the disciple, and it is the call of leadership in the church gathering to equip those disciples for that very work. This is where we find the call of discipleship for the church. This is where we see our mission to disciple. Now, as I said earlier, you will not explicitly find the English word discipleship in the New Testament. However, what we know and refer to as discipleship comes from the Greek word in the New Testament, forgive me, mathetiwa, really difficult to pronounce. I see a Greek speaker uh, shaking his head no. Um, but what I do know, maybe not how to pronounce it exactly, but that this is not the idea of just getting people converted. It is not the idea of just getting people to repeat a prayer after you. But it is the idea of equipping disciples, training disciples, coming alongside disciples as they grow in their God-given giftings and the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that they can then be sent out from the gathering, ready and equipped to do the ministry, bringing the message of reconciliation wherever they go. It is in verse 12 that we find a major contrast between the Western church and the biblical church. The philosophy of the Western church is often to create a friendly and welcoming atmosphere on Sunday mornings so that the believers would feel comfortable enough to invite non-believers to the church in hopes that, you know, maybe through the entertaining music and uplifting message, the unbeliever might come to know Christ. This is that seeker-sensitive philosophy we previously mentioned. 
a philosophy that has designed Sunday morning gathering to be a tractional experience for the unbeliever. However, the call in scripture for the church gathering is that it is meant for the church, the called out ones, those who have been adopted by the Father, redeemed by the Son, and regenerated by the Holy Spirit. It isn't a place where we rely on the pastors to evangelize to family, friends, and coworkers. No, it's, it's a place where we are trained up as saints so that we can leave here fully equipped in our gifts so that we can evangelize to our friends, family, and coworkers ourselves. This is the mission of discipleship we have as a church. There's no one passage in the scripture that clearly defines discipleship, but we are given example after example of what this looks like in the Christian life. Let's take a look at a few for a moment. I'll be on the screen. First, as we have been discussing, we find in the scriptures that discipleship takes place in the church gathering. Hebrews 12, or Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as it is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. In Hebrews, we see that it is in the corporate gathering of the church that we are to be stirred up, encouraged, built up, trained up, and equipped to love and good works. This is discipleship. Acts 2.42 says that they, meaning the disciples, gathered and devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Again, here we see in the corporate gathering a devotion to being trained up, built up, and equipped through the studying of the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and prayer. And of course, we see in Ephesians 4.12, as we've been discussing, uh, that leadership is given not to entertain but to equip the saints for the work of ministry. These are all examples of how discipleship takes place in the church gathering. But not only does discipleship happen in the church gathering, but we see in Ephesians 4, or sorry, Ephesians 6 verse 4, that discipleship happens in the home as the call is given to fathers to not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up, right? Raise, train, equip them up in discipline and instruction of the Lord. One chapter earlier, we see another example of discipleship happening in the home as husbands are called to be imitators in Christ as they wash their wives in the word. Again, we see two more examples of discipleship taking place this time in the home. In Titus 2.4 and 2 Timothy 2.2, we find that discipleship happens in one-on-one meetings. In Titus 2, the older women are called to pull aside the younger women, instructing them, teaching them what it means to be a godly woman, a godly wife, and godly mother. In 2 Timothy 2, 2, we see Paul equipping Timothy one-on-one so Timothy can then turn around and equip someone else one-on-one. In Hebrews chapter 3, we see that discipleship happens in everyday life. The author says in verse 13, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. That's every day. That none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Here the call to exhort is not just meant for Sunday mornings, but for every day. Lastly, we see in the scriptures that discipleship can sometimes happen unplanned and in the spur of the moment. In Acts 18, we find a story of a recently converted man named Apollos, who isn't a false teacher per se, but who is teaching falsely due to a lack of understanding. And because of this, Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple, in the spur of the moment, pull Apollos aside as they might explain to him the way of God more accurately. As we can see, there are so many examples of discipleship we find in the scriptures, So many, in fact, that it is as if it's assumed that all of us are to be involved in this process as Christians. Whether it be in our personal discipleship or in our encouragement of others, we are to be built up, trained, and equipped for every good work. 
Now, while we see discipleship happening in different times and settings, we will see that the tool we use for discipleship never changes. Take a look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul instructs Timothy one-on-one in this way. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Again, we see that the man of God, the disciple, we've made complete and equipped for every good work by the teaching, reproof, correction, and training that comes from the scriptures. Here at Shoreline, we subscribe to uh, what is known as the doctrine of sola scriptura, is the belief that uh, the scriptures are the final rule and authority of all faith and practice. In other words, we believe that in the scriptures, we find sufficient instruction for everything pertaining to faith and godliness. And then we find the gospel. And then we find that gifts have been given to men, and we find that we are to be good stewards of both of them. So what does this look like in the scriptures to use the Bible in discipleship? Well, in our gatherings at Shoreline, we strive to have services that are driven by the word of God. In times of proclamation, we teach the word. In times of adoration, we sing the word. In times of supplication, we pray the word. We want to be driven by the word of God in all that we do on Sunday morning so that the saints would be equipped. This should carry on into the homes with families. Parents should be using the word to build up their children. Husbands should be using the word to encourage their wives. Whether it's in the form of going verse by verse through a book of the Bible, perhaps a devotional or a catechism, this should be happening in the home on a daily basis. The word of God should be cherished in our one-on-one meetings. We should be taking younger people aside who are younger in the faith out for a cup of coffee. We should pick out a book study, read through a commentary together to help raise them up so they can do the same with others. In our everyday life, something as simple as driving in a car with someone or grilling up steaks in the backyard can serve as opportunities for encouragement as the Word of God leads our discussion. Whether you're sharing what you've read in the Scriptures that morning or sharing what you've learned in your personal devotional time, uh, these things can go a long way in building up those around us. As 2 Timothy 4 says, we are to be ready in and out of season to provide biblical correction in the spur of the moment when maybe a friend or loved one starts, you know, speaking some rank heresy. Uh, We need to use the scriptures, pull them aside, and correct that in a loving way. This is the lifestyle of discipleship that we are all called to. There is no getting around it. This should be what we see in our day-to-day lives. It's what they're to consist of, that we are prepared for the work of ministry. Paul says in verse 12 that as long as this discipleship plays out in our lives and in the church, we will continuously be built up. And he says this will continue until, as verse 13 says, we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In verse 13, we see the impact of the saints being equipped for the work of ministry, which is that as discipleship is taking place, the church is being built up and unified in that faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God so that we'll become a church full of saints who are unified in the truth, who know the truth, believe the truth, and are able to communicate the truth of Jesus Christ and the gospel in their lives and ministries. So in verse 13, the building up doesn't refer to numerical growth, but to spiritual maturity, which ultimately comes from knowing Christ and his word. This is the very call of discipleship, that we will not just have a superficial knowledge of the Son of God, but that we would have a deep knowledge and full understanding of who he is and what he has done so we're equipped to tell others about him. 
This is the very desire Paul has in the book of Philippians, where we see in chapter 3, verse 8, he states, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. This is the result of biblical discipleship. This is the result of sound biblical teaching that takes place in the life and gathering of the church. This is to take place so that, as verse 14 says, we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. In the scriptures, we will find warning after warning given about false prophets and teachers who would come into the church to deceive the people of God. In Philippians, Paul refers to them as the dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. Jude refers to them as the ungodly who creep into the fellowship. Verse 13 tells us that we are to be mature in the knowledge of the Son of God so that we may not be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried around by every wind of doctrine. Here Paul refers to the spiritual babe who, because of their lack of biblical discernment and knowledge, is easily captivated and influenced by every new and exciting false teaching that comes their way. In Paul's day, many were led astray by the teachings of the Gnostics and the Judaizers. Today, Many are led astray by false teachings such as the prosperity gospel and the word of faith movement. Movements that teach the gospel to be the good news that God wants us as Christians to claim and have nothing but health, wealth, and prosperity in all areas of life. Now, the spiritually mature Christian who has been discipled and is standing firm on the word exercises discernment by filtering such claims through the scriptures. In doing this, the mature Christian will reject these teachings as they have no biblical basis. However, the spiritually immature Christian who has not been discipled will hear these claims and be taken by them such as a helpless child who is taken by the wind. The word used here for children in verse 14 refers to the nerf, nurse, not, oh, not nerfing, that's not a word, but the nursing infant. That was difficult. But it refers to the baby who will eat or chew on anything you put in his or her mouth. This is the word that Paul uses in describing those who have been professing Christians and in the church for years but are unable to discern the human cunnings and deceitful schemes of the false teachers. Now, although this is often the result of poor leadership and a lack of discipleship, the leader isn't the only one to blame for this, as the author of Hebrews chastises not the leadership, but the immature babe in chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, For though by this time, meaning after all of these years of being a Christian, after all of these years being in the church, you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Here the author is saying that the spiritually immature Christian who has been around for years and yet isn't equipped in their knowledge of Christ and his word is like an adult who is still nursing. The point is they should be further along. They should be eating steak and potatoes. And this we see that the saints, uh, the saints' discipleship is not only the responsibility of the leaders, but the saint has a responsibility for their own discipleship. The author doesn't chastise the leader in the church for the immaturity of the saint, but the saint themselves. We as disciples are to take responsibility for our spiritual maturity or lack of it, especially those of us who have been Christians and in the church for years. We should be taking ownership of our walks with Christ. We should be spending time in the scriptures. We should be spending time in personal devotion and worship. Unlike the infant who is dependent on the nursing mother for nourishment, we should know how to feed ourselves. But not only that, we should know how to feed others who are younger in the faith. It is our responsibility not to simply watch others, but to be proactive in our Christian lives. 
We see this very thing in the book of Philippians as Paul instructs the church, saying that as Christ has granted salvation to us, we are to work out, not meaning work for, but work from, our salvation with fear and trembling. That is the call of the disciple. Paul goes on in verse 15, saying, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. It's now the call of Christ for us to remain in a place of spiritual immaturity as babes. But as verse 15 says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. This is the very mission of the church to disciple, to equip the saints through the teaching of the word of God so that they, we, us, collectively would grow up, mature in every way into him who is the head. But not only are we to be built up with truth, we're also to be built up in love so that the truth we speak is not used as a baton to smack people over the head with, but a truth used with compassion so many would come to know Christ and be made mature in him. You will often find terms such as truth and love or knowledge and grace used together in the scriptures, and that because, that's because truth without love is legalism, and love without truth is often deception. Timothy Keller says it like this, Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Truth and love are both to be present in our evangelism and they're both to be present in our discipleship as it will cause us to grow up into every way into him who is the head into Christ. In verse 15, Christ is referred to as the head. Again, we see this in Ephesians 5, 23, as Christ is referred to the head of the body, the church. Now, as we speak on the purpose of the gathering of the church, it's important to make sure that before we leave here today, we understand that it is not our job as the body to build the church numerically. Christ has promised to do that himself in Matthew 16. It is not our job as the body to figure out the best ways to do church. It is not our job to try to make the church entertaining, fun, fresh, or new. No, it is our job as the body to submit to the headship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who in his life and death and resurrection has redeemed and chosen for himself a bride that he calls his church. A bride that he has promised to be the one to sanctify and cleanse by the washing of the word so that he might present her to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. When we come to understand that Jesus is the head and we are the body, when we acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and we are his servants, when we as the body fully submit ourselves to the headship of Christ and following the instructions he has given in Ephesians 4, we will then and only then see the fulfillment of verse 16 take place, as the whole body will be joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Notice in verse 16 that it is not the job of the partial body, but the whole body. It is not some of the joints, but every joint. It is not a few parts, but each part working properly. This will be the product of a church that is focused on the mission of discipleship. A church that has a plurality of gifted elders who make it their mission not to entertain, but to equip devoted and faithful saints in their giftings for the work of ministry. This is their job. Let us strive for this mission of discipleship, not only in the gathering, 
but in our homes, in our times of one-on-one meetings, in our everyday lives. The more we do this, the more the scriptures say we will be built up in love, and of course it is by that love that the world will know we are his disciples. I want to go ahead and ask the worship band to come up, Pastor Micah, as we uh, close our time with proclamation. Um, we're going to finish with one song, but before we do that, I want to read from a uh, prayer book, it's a, it's a Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision, and um, in honor and response to what we've spoken through his word today, I think it's fitting um, that we go to this prayer of supplication as we come to God asking for his grace and mercy in our personal discipleship. So go ahead and stand with me this time for real, read through this, and then we'll go through the final song. Oh, my Savior, help me. I am so slow to learn, so prone to forget, so weak to climb. I am in the foothills when I should be on the heights. I am pained by my graceless heart, my prayerless days, my poverty of love, my sloth in the heavenly race, my sullied conscience, my wasted hours, my unspent opportunities. I am blind while light shines around me. Take the scales from my eyes, grind to dust the evil heart of unbelief. Make it my chiefest joy to study thee, meditate on thee, gaze on thee, sit like Mary at thy feet, lean like John on thy breast, appeal like Peter to thy love, and count like Paul all things done. Give me increase in my progress and grace so that there may be more decision in my character, more vigor in my purpose, more elevation in my life, more fervor in my devotion, more consistency in my zeal. As I have position in the world, keep me from making the world my position. May I never seek in the creature what can be found only in the creator. Let not faith cease from seeking thee until it vanishes into sight. Ride forth in me, thou King of kings and Lord of lords, that I may live victoriously and in victory attain my end. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.